My guest on this episode of the EU History Podcast is Dr. Joanne Hallows, writer and researcher whose work focuses on the politics of food media and on feminism and consumer culture. Joanne, welcome to the EU History Podcast. Thank you very much. Um, I should I should admit that I had started this project, this podcast project, somewhat determined not to discuss Britain and Brexit and the broader <laughs> fascinating, if not erratic relationship with Europe and the integration process. But but then I read your article, uh, your recent article in Contemporary British History entitled Enthusing About Green Peppers, the Europeanization of British Food Culture in Post-War Britain, 1960 to 1975. And it quite literally whet my appetite. So here we are talking about Britain and Europe and the European integration process. Your your research covers, you know, very interesting a very interesting period in British-European relations. It starts with in and around Britain's first application to join the EEC in 1961. Uh, it ends then with Britain, with the British Labour government's renegotiation and subsequent referendum um, on continued uh, community membership in 1975. But rather than rather than focus on high politics, uh, <laughs> the high politics of accession and renegotiation, um, we're going to instead discuss Europeanization in British food culture, identity and class formation, which in many ways is far more interesting. <laughs> You, as I say, you've done an awful lot. You have a very wide body of work. But what what led you to think about and and ultimately dive deep into a very rich body of, of material, looking at British uh, eating habits, <laughs> identity, and I suppose the Europe the Europe question more broadly during the sixties yeah. and, and early seventies. Well, I suppose I mean there's sort of two separate answers to that. The, I ended up working on food for a very strange reason, really. I someone who's sort of of background is in media and cultural studies and when I was working at Nottingham Trent there just happened to be four of us who were mad about food <laughs> so we decided to teach a module and that was kind of the basis for everything we wrote a book together based on the module and I was spending a lot of my spare time watching cookery programs and that's kind of the way I've done my research really it's come out of things that I'm interested in and start to see questions and patterns but the European side of it was rather different in a way in that I've got no background in studies of Europe, the constitution, anything to do with that. And it came out of the, the Brexit experience, which obviously totally preoccupied us in Britain over an incredibly long period. And we just spent endless amounts of time talking about it. In a way, it came out of conversations with my partner on holiday in the Dolomites. <laughs> and we started talking about as we were sort of walking now we came to feel European we were both people who grew up in the 60s and 70s as kids and we started to talk about all the things that surrounded us as children that were European and we understood as signs of Europe and that ranged from partly we were discussing the Alps themselves and how mountain imagery was incredibly strong and we ended up writing an article together about how the Alps figured as this kind of supranational European region in holiday brochures in the post-war period and as a 
place really of peace and calm and health, which is in sharp contrast to World War II. But we started talking about the things from our childhood, and those were things like television programs that we, as children, we got quite a lot of European television programs dubbed into English um, from France and Germany in particular, about things like yogurts that was was sort of strange and exotic about things like when I was a child one of the most exciting things we could do was go to the Danish food centre in the centre of Manchester which was this otherworldly place with gorgeous furniture and really beautiful cakes and it was all those little things so as a child I only went to the continent a couple of times on holiday but we were lived in a landscape full of Europe and really it came out of that and because I work on food I sort of started to think about the food aspect of it and what we were eating at home as a fairly normal family and then I sort of started to look more into that. And as a fairly normal British family is there a wider exposure of kind of other types of European identity either a subconscious formation or or more of a conscious one like going to a Danish uh, you know (laughs) store? It was a lot of it was through television there were lots of glamorous images of Europe and uh, not in the children's programs but in the programs that were sort of family or entertainment so programs like the champions which opened uh with the heroes I don't even know what they did some kind of international espionage in front of the fountain in Geneva and that was a really striking image when I was a child it was like oh I want to go there someday I loved the sound of music so that was another image of Europe and it was and then there was advertising with loads of glamorous images in the Sunday colour supplement of people skiing people in French beach resorts and it was a life totally cut off from the one I live but those were the kinds of things informing it and then as I got older I suppose things like the Berlin imagery became more important as well you know that could range from watching cabaret and reading Christopher Isherwood through to obsessions with the Velvet Underground in Berlin and that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, Brexit is not too far away from how you backtrack to this whole area. Yeah. And then, <laughs> Absolutely. And then, and, and then you, I suppose, unsurprisingly pick one of the more uh, interesting and formative periods, as I mentioned, of this the early years of the British-European relationship. And in the article, you do, you do a deep dive into recipes. You see, your focus then is trying to extract some kind of evidence, shall we say, yeah. of a maybe a creeping Europeanization through yeah. recipes genius <laughs> um, and my students often wonder or try to have these issues about how they uh, kind of yeah, select methodology and in this case you yours is ultimately based on the times and the observer yeah why did you go for those two partly pragmatic I could get uh, the times access to the times digitally you know the times was a widely read middle class newspaper so on one level it was an obvious choice it was one where I thought if there was going to be European stuff it would be in the Times and I did have the digital access which you know you have to make those practical decisions as well I didn't have proper digital access to the Observer um, once they started the colour supplement 
So the colour supplement starts in the early 60s. And at that point, the cooking goes into the colour supplement. So those I had to go and root out in a library. But the observer, in a way, the things perhaps we'll go on to talk about about class, the observer was perhaps emblematic of a more relaxed middle class, a more trendy middle, liberal middle class, which again, I thought might be an interesting contrast with a more traditional middle class readership of the time. I think initially I'd wanted to do a lot more, but then I didn't realise how long it took. Mm. Um, because I think there would be some interesting contrasts to be done with more working class newspapers at the time. I think the Europeanness would be there, but not to the same extent and not in the same way. Because obviously the middle classes had far more access to travel mm. and they had far more to gain through the identification with Europe that you know their lives their lifestyles were part of their lives part of the way their classes were recognized and Europe became I think a very important ingredient in that mm. if you'll pardon the ingredient part <laughs> whether that's through food or through French films or um whatever and I mean what's quite interesting and I don't think I really highlight it in the article is you know the 60s are a time that's often seen as a celebration of Britishness through the Beatles, through Mary Quant, through things like that. And we sort of, I think that's one of the ways we've lost the sheer importance of Europe to that period. And some aspects of it are frequently discussed, for example, the mobs and their relationship to Italy. But I think what's lost is how that was far more normal, how it was far more across age groups. It wasn't just a youth thing. You're, you're looking at Obviously, it's as to a large degree the recipes that are uh, published in the Times and the Observer during this period yeah. of fifteen years. On the one hand, there's the recipes, and it is then on the other hand, it is the the people who select the recipes. What kind of research did you do on the background of the writers or of the food? Not not a lot, is <laughs> it to say? Uh, and some of them were entirely anonymous, mm. um, which I think is quite interesting in itself. That's one of the things that's drawn me to these columns. But I think it's a mixture, really. I don't I don't think any of them went out with a sort of let's get Britain ready for Europe kind of mentality. Some of them, it would have been about the legitimacy of French cuisine. They would have loved French cuisine. They would have identified that as the so-called best cuisine associated with an oak cuisine tradition. And that would have been that. Some, it would have been linked to uh, travel. And among some of the anonymous writers for the times in the slightly earlier period, I mean, I don't know what those women, I assume a lot of the writers are women. Uh, I don't know what they're doing abroad how they're spending so much time in Italy. It seems a little too much to just be on permanent holiday. And I know one person um, who's interested in doing some research on actually the role of things like diplomats' wives and that kind of thing uh, in promoting sort of food taste. Some of them are invested in Europe as a way of life. Um, so not so much about the oak cuisine, but in terms of a romantic, we can live differently in Europe, normally again linked to holidaying or partly living there, where a pace of life is different, where there's a fetishization of a very simple Europe, not a capital city 
Europe. Uh, often our identification with peasant ways of life, which in many ways sort of chimes with how at least parts of the middle classes would grow to see European holidays, you know, that escape into a simple peasant French lifestyle or whatever. So in many ways, I think some of them are definitely coming from that point of view. Some of them are invested in haute cuisine. And I think, I think Len Dayton's just, I suppose, for people who aren't familiar with him, Len Dayton was atypical in that he was most best known for writing spy fiction rather than cookery writing. And he creates this image of a far more youthful European cool that's far more metropolitan than many of the images you find in the recipes. And I suppose that that's an alternative Europe. I mean, people in a way are presenting their dreams of Europe, their experiences of Europe, whether that is metropolitan in, in Italy and Vespers whizzing round Rome, or whether it's the simple French country village but I don't think any of them have a mission they have a mission to make British food better mm. and they see Europe as offering the way to do that mm. I think that's kind of where the mission ends you also nicely touch upon in, in as we move from the post-war period move from the period of rationing moving to the 50s and 60s it, there it seems to be a choice whether we're going to look more towards the American way of life yeah. American consumerism American fast food culture or we look toward towards the European system of eating, of living, of holidaying and all of these yeah. kinds of things. And then within this this wider complexity that you look at in terms of Europeanization, is there a sense that, that these writers are simply trying to get the great British middle class to, to move um, consciously or subconsciously away from that kind of Americanization towards something that's more of an acceptable European way of living? So it's it's linked yeah. to the more of the Berlin than the Boston. Yes, I, th I think if we see it in the context of the wider anti-American sentiment across a range of cultural spheres, then yeah, I think it fits into it. I mean, on one hand, America offers convenience, I think for many working class and ordinary middle class families, the appeal of the freezer, the appeal of quick food that fits with everyday life was incredibly great. And on one hand, and I suppose America represents convenience. And on the other hand, Europe is sold more in terms of care, the investment of care in what you're making. So Europe is definitely held out as an opposing pole to America, I think, not necessarily consciously or explicitly, but implicitly, I think that's definitely there. And I think it's also to some extent classed because America's seen as the land of junk, easiness, um, mass culture, and they're positing it place something refined with a living history that's elevated in whatever form that European food takes it's mm. still linked to a rich cultural tradition in the way it's presented and and in class terms there is obviously a lot more capital in that kind of food than there is in the fast and easy appeals or what was seen as the fast and easy appeal, appeals of America and it's interesting I mean I've very recently been doing 
a little bit of research on World War II recipes in newspapers. And America's quite popular. But surprisingly, the common myth about World War II in Britain, and I'm not sure if this is off the point, is that there wasn't really any European dishes. You know, people just ate really anglicised, boring food. Well, I'm, I'm looking at a very middle-class newspaper, the Daily Telegraph, and there's tons of European dishes even during the Second World War. At that point, America's really embraced, partly because of the war, I'm sure. And it's a way of making links with the Allies, links with the Americans who are in Britain. But that appeal of American food definitely declines in uh, cookery columns. And partly it's pragmatic, because if America's about fast food and convenience food and easy food, then the cookery writer doesn't have a lot to do. How far is it? Is it in terms of the, the snobbishness of the, color, of the food critics themselves? You know, you <laughs> You talk uh, yeah. in the article about Clement Freud and the, these people consider themselves to be intellectuals. Um, I suppose in one way they, they themselves reject that that American consumer yeah, culture. Absolutely. And then would you argue then that, they, that they're trying to bring the, the middle class with them along that line of thinking? In a way, Clement Freud's more like a blast from the past mm. in that I haven't done that much work in the interim period, but I've, I've done a little bit between the war and this period. But there's a long history of praise for French high cuisine in Britain. It's, you know, it was long seen as the food, whether it's eating out or eating in, to aspire to of the British middle classes. So in a way, he's kind of harking back to that, but with now a sense of, I suppose what we could call dinner party cookery, mm. um, which obviously middle class women are now all cooking for themselves on the whole, rather than having anyone cooking it for them. And so it keeps that tradition of the legitimacy of French oak cuisine that in a way is a bit of a throwback. I mean, it carries on and it carries on into well into the 70s and 80s and even now, arguably. But I think that's less novel. I think what is novel is this kind of hectoring approach to women and saying, you're not really up to this, but we'll have a go kind of thing. <laughs> You'll never be as good as these professional men. And I think what's more comes through during that period is that emphasis on peasant cookery or the emphasis in people like Len Dayton on here are some professional skills you can just work into a domestic kitchen and get great results like you get in a Parisian cafe rather than that sort of dinner party cookery that Clement Freud represents. Despite the fact that a lot of the ingredients that you talk about which are quintessentially European um, are, are not so easy <laughs> to get I imagine yeah. during the 1960s. No, um, not at all. Um, olive oil is still very hard to come by, which is obviously one of the key ingredients. And things like courgettes and aubergines would not have been readily available to the vast majority of people. So, yeah, the, uh, the sort of peasant cookery that fetishizes kind of authenticity depends on very good continental ingredients that were certainly weren't accessible and made that food not as easy as it presented itself to be. But in, in how far then is there this cultural process underway um, in the middle class, in the great British middle class of becoming, I wouldn't say European, but that's a very hard one to nail down um, or put another way. So are they in, on the one hand becoming somewhat more European or is the process of Europeanization for the great British middle class taking place only in the kitchen? No, I'd, I'd say not. Um, and, you know, in a way it's beyond my research because <laughs> I've just focused on cooking. 
but I'd say, you know, there's things like the enthusiasm for French uh, new wave cinema or the things like design where Italian and also Scandinavian design were very, very big uh, for some of the middle classes during that period. So it's certainly happening in the kitchen, not just in recipes as well, mm. but in things like, you know, cooking apparatus. Mm. Um, so the fondue set becomes <laughs> emblematic of the period as well. But no, I'd say there's a kind of link to a sort of looseness amongst the middle class. And Ben Highmore was written brilliantly about this in his recent book. There's this kind of increasing sense of looseness. And where do you turn if you want a more relaxed way of living? You can't turn to the British middle classes of the past. There's a turn to certainly a sort of English country style, rustic element there but that becomes quite promiscuous in a way you know it equally takes things from Provence mm. as it does the English country kitchen and then at the same time you've got those real trends towards you know more modernist European styles coming in as well so the home becomes a sort of place of the intersection of a whole range of European influences, whether that's mm. the chair you're sitting on, the food you're eating, the mm. pan you're using, or even partly what you're watching on TV. And as we move then towards, you know, the, the I suppose, the end game, which is membership in the 73, <laughs> and then this, this period of renegotiation, does membership, you know, make, mark any big changes in, in recipes or the culinary narrative in either of the newspapers? The honest answer to that is I don't know. Because <laughs> I haven't done that research. My guess would be there wouldn't be an, an abrupt shift at all. There's a sense in which... Throughout the 70s, similar kind of styles are continuing. There is the trend for a bit more appreciation of British food, but that trend had already been mm. underway as part of the rediscovery of sort of French and Italian peasant food. And is this within that kind of Anglicisation then of European food as we, you know, loop back to... I would guess one thing that would have been happening in the later 70s, but I don't think I'd give any direct um, causality to European membership, is the increasing sense in which European food becomes part of um, mass market meals. Um, so your lasagna, the 70s into the 80s, becomes a staple mm. and you could think of as a sort of an anglicized dish by that point mm. of course a lot of the dishes in the newspapers in the 60s are very anglicized versions mm. i mean the article i give one example of spanish rice which reappears year after year after year in various guises in katie stewart's columns in the times and there's nothing, presumably, originally it referred to paella, and occasionally it's called that, but basically it's, on the whole, some yellow or red rice with various bits added to it. And I think that kind of low-level identification with Europe in a totally inauthentic way, and in a way that doesn't fetishise authenticity, mm. is how that sort of diffused a lot more. So Spanish rice becomes something you can buy in a supermarket, 
And in a way, its roots don't become that important. They're just part of Britain in the same way as lasagna and pizza become. To loop back then to the start of your article, which you start with a wonderful quote from E.P. Thompson, and I, it's worth repeating, or it's worth, worth requoting. So you say, quote, the first person who enthused to me some years ago about going into Europe went on to enthuse about green peppers. This gave a clue as to what the great British middle class think Europe is about. <laughs> <laughs> was he right or were they right? Was this what they thought Europe was about? It was simply about green peppers <laughs> and not what it became. Well, clearly, clearly it wasn't just about green peppers. I think this, there was certainly that, if, if I'm allowed to talk about Brexit, there was sure, certainly yeah. the perception in some of the debates about Brexit that certainly came back, not just literally in terms of green peppers, but in terms of, you know, you British middle classes, you want your holidays you've benefited from Europe you've got all this nice food but what about all the people who haven't benefited for Europe and so that argument was very much made so it kind of lingers on the sense that an enjoyment of European culture which is a class privilege is somehow made some people predisposed to Europe but also is something that was wrong um, in some kind of criticism and in some ways it was a very snobby thing you know and you can see where those class resentments absolutely come from but at the same time it was a and I suppose this goes back to how I started talking about Europe with my partner because we'd always felt European we were still very young when we entered Europe and we didn't and we saw ourselves as far more European than British and we sort of thought well how did we get that way and so it wasn't just through <laughs> It was through a whole range of cultural influences that was another life out there that looked rather better than Britain. To segue away from food, to conclude this podcast episode, each guest is asked a random question from the Proust questionnaire. And Joanne, here is yours. Which historical figure do you most identify with? You've really put me on the spot here. Um... I'm not going to say the one I most want to identify with. I'm going to say the one I most want to be, and it'd be Ingrid Bergman. <laughs> because because when I was a child and I watched a lot of Ingrid Bergman movies, she offered such a, an amazing vision of uh, sort of feminine strength in rather nice clothes. So yeah, I'll stick with Ingrid Bergman. Dr. Joanne Hallows, writer, <laughs> researcher, and expert on the politics of food media and on feminism and consumer culture. Thanks for being my guest today. I'm Michael Geary, and this is the EU History Podcast. <laughs>